First Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse one, it says, now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely, you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now, Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunim. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium in indoor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me for your Saul? And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and he doesn't answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I've called you that you should may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, so why do you ask me seeing the Lord has departed from you? And has become your enemy. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. Nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. 
immediately. Saul fell full length on the ground and he was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maid servant has obeyed your voice. And I put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now, the woman had a fatted calf in the house. And she hastened to kill it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Recently, a pollster revealed that over 40% of all American adults, well over one third of the nation, claim to be in contact with the dead. Of these, 78% claim that they saw the dead, 50% heard the dead, 18% talked with the dead. And it's never been more popular. On television, there's medium and there's ghost whisperer. We're left with the impression that access to those who have departed is quite easy. Now, we're fast approaching the end of Saul's life. Remember what First Samuel has been about. It's been about the man who has been running away from God and the man who is the man after God's own heart. We've been looking at the carnal man and the disobedient man and the spiritual man, we see that Saul has been given every advantage. He's been given every opportunity to trust the Lord. He's been given every opportunity to submit to the Lord. He's been given every opportunity to obey the Lord. But he continues to resist him. The Lord now allows the enemies of Israel to challenge and now go to war against the nation. And we've seen that Saul, in his character, his relentless jealousy, his homicidal anger, his deep bitterness over and over and over again. And now the enemy of Israel threatens to destroy the nation. And Saul peers into the night. And he wonders what the future holds, not only for the nation, but for himself. And Saul's future holds death. Because his future is a future with no hope. Remember what we've seen. David is in exile. David has been living in the land of the pagan king Achish. David's backslidden condition has already led to disaster. But God has a plan for David. God has unfinished business with David. And God is not about to give up on David. 
Now, this should give you hope. This should give you hope because God has a plan for you. Even if you find yourself in less than perfect circumstances, even if you haven't been wholly and completely devoted to the Lord, there is a sense in which God has a plan for you. And if ever there was a time for you not to give up on God, if ever there was a time for you to walk according to the plan and with the power of the Spirit in the direction that God is calling you to, it is now. There are three dark clouds that have rolled into the land of Israel and has overcast the heart of Saul like a long, dark shadow that blots out the light of hope. Israel and Saul face a foe and a fear. That they can't overcome. Unless God intervenes. Unless God shows up and makes things different. He's not going to make it. And what are those dark clouds? Number one, the threat of the Philistine war is imminent. Number two, the death of Samuel. And you have to understand something in this passage. The reason why it keeps bringing up the issue of the death of Samuel is because Samuel is the spokesperson for God. Samuel is the voice, if you will, of God. And with Samuel's death, God has stopped speaking. There's no supernatural revelation that's available to them. And that's number three, the silence of the sovereign God. Saul is unable to hear from God, either by the prophet or by the divine instrument, which, got, which they use historically. In this case, it's the Urim and the Thummim. Apparently, these are instruments that the high priest would use to cast lots in order to hear from God so that they would know which direction to go or through supernaturally through dreams. And so these are dark days. These are desperate times. If there is an imminent collapse that's about to take place and you're crying out to God and you're not hearing anything, what do you do? And so in verse 1 it says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish, who is the king, remember, of Gath, says to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. The decision of the Philistines to go to war with would force David out of his own spiritual swamp. In other words, in his own rebellion, in his own backslidden condition, as he finds himself in the enemy camp, the enemy is gathering their forces together and they're going to make an onslaught against the people of God. And that's exactly what happens when the Christian backslides. Because make no mistake about it, when you go out into the enemy camp, the enemy isn't content that you just abandoned Jesus. They want you to fight on their side. You'll remember from the last chapter, David has left Judah. He sought refuge and protection with the king. And David has wandered into the valley of doubt. He has wandered into a circumstance for whatever reason he has forgotten the promises of God. He's backslidden. In a major way. I don't know if you've ever been in that circumstance. Out of touch with the promises of God. Out of touch with the presence of God. In a desperate spiritual desert. And you needed to hear from God. 
And you'll recall that in David's backslidden condition, it's caused him to live a life of, of, of spiritual deception and duplicity. He's now in a position of serving the thing that he hated most, the enemies of Israel. And now David's compromise is going to be put to the test. Where does his loyalty really lie? And when you compromise, that's exactly what will happen to you. Your loyalty will be put to the test. Do you really believe God? Do you really believe Jesus? Do you really believe the Bible? Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe that they're true? Where does David's loyalty lie? Will he join the Philistine king and fight against his own people? How is David going to get out of this horrible mess that he's created for himself? Have you ever cried out to God? How am I ever going to get out of this mess that I've created for myself? I call this the principle, stop, drop, and roll. Do you remember when kids are on fire and they learn from, look, if you're on fire, stop, drop, roll. When you're in rebellion and disobedience, stop what you're doing. Drop, repent, and make sure that your name is on the roll in heaven. Repent of sin. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Throw yourself on the grace and the mercy of God. Achish insists that David and his men will fight with him against Israel. And look what it says in verse 2. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Note David's answer. It's one of those answers that can be taken any way the hearer wants to hear it. Okay, David, this is where we're at. David goes, surely you know what your servant can do. Is that an answer? Does that mean I'm with you or I'm against you? If there's enough uncertainty and ambiguity in the answer, it can mean whatever you think you want it to mean. And Achish clearly wants it to mean David is on my side. And so he wants to make David and his entourage a part of his own Philistine secret service entourage. Can you imagine David with the headsets and the dark glasses? And Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Achish is coming into the room. Heads up. We have to make sure nobody assassinates him. Instead of writing psalms, instead of singing songs, David is asked to make a new script that we might entitle Guarding Achish. I need to ask you a question. Was God's hand on David's life to become a secret service agent for Achish? Did God redeem David and watch over David and gift David and give him a heart for God? Did God call David, gift David, promise David in order to wind up in the enemy's camp? What do you think the answer is? The answer is no, he doesn't belong there and neither do you. God didn't save you. You weren't bought with things as as corrupt and as, as temporal as gold and silver. You were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You don't belong in the enemy's camp. You never belonged in the enemy's camp. God made an investment in David and God made an investment 
in you. And God has given his son, Jesus Christ. And God raised Jesus from the dead. And God gave the Holy Spirit for your sanctification. Even in these wicked, wicked circumstances, David is cared for by God. He cares about what's going on. And he certainly cares even about the mess that he's gotten himself into. You know what that means? He cares about your mess as well. He cares about your circumstances as well. Jesus knows the difficult decisions that you have had to make. And Jesus knows that your loyalties are being tested. And Jesus wants to get you into the place of unencumbered, sweet communion. And the harp of David needs to be played. And the voice of David needs to be heard. He was never meant to be there. And look what it says in verse 3. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. The writer reminds us that Samuel is dead, buried at Ramah. And like I said, he's God's voice to the people. The voice of the prophet has been silenced. And this is the problem that Saul faces. Saul is facing an imminent threat and he needs supernatural instructions and he isn't going to get them from the Lord. In happier times, Saul had kicked out the mediums. He had kicked out the spiritists. And it's interesting to note that Saul didn't kill them, but he exiled them. Remember what the scriptures say? You shall not suffer a witch to live. I know you might think that that's harsh. Oh, that's kind of harsh. We're talking Salem witchcraft burnings. That seems a little intolerant. You know, you might think that it's intolerant, but remember, 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 remember. There's a reason why God radically, unequivocally, and fundamentally wanted to remove all of the false prophets and all of the false teachings and all of the wicked ways from among the people because it was God's desire. It was always God's desire to speak to the people, to love the people, to communicate with the people. And part of the principle becomes that's what the Lord wants you to do. He's not interested in you getting your information from CNN or from Fox News or from radio or television preachers necessarily. God is willing to speak to you. He's willing to point you to the word of God so that you can open up the Bible and read for yourself his plans and his purposes and his promises. And in verse four, look what it says. Then the Philistines gathered together and they came and they encamped at Shunim. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped at Gilboa. <clears throat> the, the armies of the Philistines are encamped now. When we get our when we take our trips to Israel, we go through the Jezreel Valley. I show the place on Mount Gilboa where Saul is slain in this great valley that's also called the Valley of Megiddo or Har Megiddo. Saul is afraid when Saul saw the army of the Philistines in verse five. He was afraid. Saul has faced a much larger and far more sophisticated force than he's ever faced before. Saul had forgotten about the victories won 
on that very same battlefield when Israel's leader and army had, had chosen to trust the Lord. The war, the battle, when it is fought, can be won. And by the way, historically, this is the place where Barak, during the time of the judges, was encouraged by Deborah, the great judge of Israel. This is the place where Gideon had seen the host of Midian threatening the people of Israel. The Lord had delivered his people in the past who trusted him and had confidence in him. But Saul is a stranger to confidence and trust in the Lord. Saul can't say with a clean conscience, I will trust the Lord. I will not be afraid. All he sees is disaster. And because all he sees is disaster, like I said, he's desperate to hear from God. Look what it says. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim, or by the prophets. Listen carefully. Personal means, when he says he inquired of the Lord, it means dreams and prayer. In other words, he talks to God, he hears nothing. He, he seeks to know what God is saying through dreams, and prophetic dreams don't work. Even God's supernatural source, the Urim, which was cast by the priests in order to tell the will of God. Oh, wait a minute. Now we understand. We remember. Didn't Saul kill the priests? Didn't he kill the high priest and then massacre them? Can you imagine? You kill the high priest, you massacre them all, and then you go, hey, uh, could you do me a favor? Could you inquire of the Lord concerning my circumstance? It's okay for you to ask this question. Why are all the avenues of communication closed to Saul? Why is it that when he prays, he hears nothing? Why is it when he inquires of the prophets, he hears nothing? Why is it when he goes to sleep, he hears nothing? Why is it when he... Asks the priest, he hears nothing. It's because of his persistent and willful and consistent commitment to rebellion and evil conduct. There's not even one ounce of willingness in his heart to change his heart. You know what he doesn't want to do? He doesn't want to repent of his sin. He doesn't want to obey God. He doesn't want to repent and he doesn't want to obey God. He has no intention of changing his heart. He has no intention of seeking forgiveness. All he desires is the safety of his own scalp. Saul is seeking God for purposes of self-preservation. And you might be thinking, oh, is that bad? It could be. And let me tell you why. Because your existence or your non-existence is not nearly, not nearly as important as your existence before God and having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As difficult as this might be for you to understand, 
There is nothing. I repeat, there is nothing. There is nothing. I repeat, nothing more important than you going to heaven. There is nothing more important than for you to go to heaven. There is nothing more important than for you to experience forgiveness and love in the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important. And Saul cries out to save his skin, and heaven is silent. Does the Bible talk about heaven being silent anywhere else? It does. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, remember it says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. Some Bible commentators have read that and postulated that there are no ladies who go to heaven. It's a joke. It's a joke. We know that's not true. Ladies get to go to heaven. They just can't imagine a world in which it's silent for 30 straight minutes. But let me help you with this. Silence in heaven usually means that the next word that's going to be spoken is a word of judgment. You need to be careful when you cry out to God and you go, God, why aren't you listening to me? Hello, anybody up there? And it feels like your words are echoing out of an empty chamber. Saul has no place to turn. Because Saul will not turn to God on God's terms. That's an important thing for you to know at this point. Saul has no place to turn because Saul will not turn to God on God's terms. You know what God's terms are? Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Forsake your sin. And obey God. Why won't he do that? Why won't he do that. Why won't he shed tears of sorrow for his sin, for his rebellion, for his wickedness, for his disobedience? Why won't he simply throw himself on the mercy of God and the grace of God? Because whatever punishment or discipline God has for him is so much better than living in league with the devil. And if you put off repentance... If you put off obeying God because you thought that he wouldn't take you back. The Bible says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Maybe God will have mercy. But Saul knocks on the wrong door. Saul's looking for hope. And he's looking for a way out of his fatal position apart from the plan and the purpose and the will of God. Now, I want you to think this through. If you are looking for a way out of the sinful circumstances that you find yourself in apart from the plan of Jesus, I beg you to reconsider. 
As a matter of fact, in verse 7, look what it says. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who's a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, well, in fact, there's a woman who's a medium in Endor. Now, we know what a medium is. A medium is a person who seeks to communicate with the dead in order to get information or comfort. By the way, the word translated medium, you know what it is in the Hebrew language? It's lady of ghosts. Isn't that a bizarre way of thinking about it? Especially when you watch Ghost Whisperer Medium on TV. It's the lady who speaks to dead people. Endor is about 17 miles from Saul's camp in Gilboa. You know why I'm giving you this information? It isn't simply to give you a geographical insight into the circumstances. It's in order for you to understand something. Saul has to cross enemy lines in order to speak with this woman. He has to leave his own camp, cross the enemy line, go into the territory of the Philistines in order to commit a crime. And I'm using the term crime. Why am I using the term crime? Is it a crime for the children of Israel to communicate with the dead? It is a crime. But Saul falls into the leadership Dilemma. A lot of authority figures struggle with the idea that they are somehow above the law and above the commandments of God. I'm the king and the Bible doesn't really apply to me. Oh, you couldn't be more wrong. The fact that you're in a position of authority doesn't mean the Bible is less applicable to you. It means it's more applicable to you. Are you a mother? Are you a father? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a Bible teacher? No matter who you are and no matter what you do, we all stand equally before the cross of Jesus Christ and the commandments of God. And even though all the mediums have been kicked out of the land, Saul's servants seem to know how to get their hands on one rather quickly. Now, don't you find that rather odd? Looking for a medium. Hey, I happen to know where one is. How exactly do you know that? Had they used her services in the past? In times past, Saul kicked them out and now he seeks them out. The Bible forbids in the strongest language possible God's people seeking counsel from supernatural sources other than the word of God. We're not to seek satanic solutions to our problems. We're not to seek demonic solutions to our problems. Leviticus 19.31 says, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. On Lee Strobel's television program, I had the honor of, of speaking with a medium. They had a, a, this lady who talked to dead people, and then they had me. And so Lee Strobel begins with, by asking the medium a question. Well, how long have you been speaking to the dead? Well, well, Lee, I've always been able to speak to the dead. You know, I've, ever since it, I was a child, I had this gift. And I said, Lee, wait, wait a minute. Why would she say this is a gift of God? Why does she describe it as a gift when the Bible clearly says that it isn't a gift? As a matter of fact, it's a prohibition. It's an abomination. He uses the word defiled to describe people who do this. 
And she said, well, it all depends on what translation you use. I said, I have at least 27 translations in front of me in English and other languages. And no prohibition becomes an affirmation. And then she said, but you can't believe everything that the Bible says. And I said, how very interesting. God's word says to be defiled by them. Do you know what that means? It's God's way of saying. If you're looking for supernatural information from contaminated sources, it will slime you. You know why the prohibition is so strong? The prohibition doesn't suggest that there's no such thing as information from supernatural sources, but that these supernatural sources can deceive you. I asked the lady, I said, tell me about these spirits. Do they always tell you the truth? I actually said this. No kidding. Has a has a spirit ever lied to you? You could hear a pin drop. It was like Jeopardy. Dun, 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 dun. And, you know, you can, there's, there's this, this long pregnant silence. You can hear the, the, the her mind is working. Well, if I say yes, he's won the argument. If I say no, I'm lying. Finally, she just said no. She said no. They never lied to me. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from the people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy. I'm the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 18.10 There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or who calls up the dead for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord, your God, drives them out from before you. Do you get the clear impression that this is probably something you shouldn't be doing? Contaminate, defile, prostitute. All major world religions teach the reality of a spirit world. All teach invisible beings that have the ability to interact with human beings in this world. The Bible teaches that there is a dimension in which angelic beings, spirit beings, exist. John Ankerberg and John Weldon said, quote, There are numerous converging lines of evidence to suggest the reality of a dimension of spirits who may be contacted by the occult method. I know it's true. I used to do it. There's a, a new DVD entitled Shattered, and it features um, Skip Heitzig and I growing up. And there was a time in my life where I read tarot cards and went into altered states of consciousness and sought to contact information from beyond. I don't have time to show you the clip, but I am a person who used to believe that I could channel spirits 
You've probably heard descriptions of people who have, are able to tell what's in another room across the town or across the world. Demonic communication, demonic possession, demonic Congress. The Bible clearly teaches there is a supernatural realm inhabited by supernatural spirits. And Jesus exercised people and he had power and Jesus both granted power to his disciples to cast out devils. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name did many wonderful works. In Mark three fourteen, it says, Then he ordained twelve they, that they should be with him, that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. The Bible teaches the reality of demonic Beings who possess, harass, afflict, torment, trouble people. People who channel spirits are putting themselves at risk. They're allowing evil, wicked, deceptive spirits to use them as dupes. And the people who engage in occult practices are not so much interested in the source of their interdimensional messages, but the message itself. I know one person who's not even a Christian, quote, Channeling promoter and leading parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach argues, quote, I believe channelers can provide valuable information as long as we don't get sidetracked in looking more closely at the entity's identity than what is communicated, unquote. What? Just don't ask where the message is coming from. What? It's good enough to know that it's a message. Do you remember as a little kid watching? Because most of you aren't old enough to, to remember uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. But there was a cartoon with Rocky and Bullwinkle. And you come out and uh, in this little cartoon they go, let's ask the spirits. And Bullwinkle says, are they friendly spirits? Even there was a time, even when children knew that there's <laughs> that you need to consider the source. Not surprisingly, he says, quote, I just don't buy the actual existence of a supreme evil or of demonic entities. Here's his, his response. I don't believe that there is such a thing as a demonic or an evil source. And guess what? He's right or he's wrong. And the Bible says he's wrong. And in verse eight, it says, so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes. And he went two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name for you. Saul puts on a different clothes. But remember what we've already learned in first Samuel. He's already at head and shoulders above everybody else. I think it's going to be difficult for him to disguise his identity. He pretends to be somebody that he isn't. And he goes in by night, hoping that the shadows will help him in his disguise and his deception. Saul forgets that God sees in the night as clearly as he sees in the day. You know that's true, don't you? People who come to the Lord... They have to come as they are. 
And in verse 9 it says, Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spirit is from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. This is like a prostitute trying to determine if her trick's an undercover officer. The medium begins to question her client. Excuse me. Are you an undercover cop here sent by Saul to try and get me in trouble? Why, no. That isn't me. Now, think about this for just a moment. Think about the absurdity of what's happening. Her psychic powers aren't burning very bright, are they? Hey, you know what? If you're a psychic, you would think that being able to just figure out this with Saul is a pretty easy thing to do. And then Saul promises the medium what he has really no right to promise. No harm will come to you. Can he make that promise? Could you say to a person, hey, if you conjure up devils and demons, no big deal. No harm, no foul. I don't think so. The Bible says in Exodus twenty-two eighteen, you shall not suffer a witch to live. And once again, Saul tries to undo the word of God because of his extraordinary circumstances. Look what she says in verse 11. Whom shall I bring up for you? Who do you want to talk to? You know, when people are hurting, when they're overwhelmed by grief and when they're overwhelmed by sorrow and when they're overwhelmed by loss and when they're running from God and when they're committed to their own sinful agenda. The limits and the boundaries get further and further and further away from God's revealed will. What are they willing to do? Look at what happens when a person completely turns their back on the Lord. Samuel is buried some 60 miles away at Ramah. Who do you want me to bring up for you? She says. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. By the way, did the woman bring up Samuel? I'm going to suggest to you, no. She doesn't have the power to do that. Does God allow the spirit of Samuel to leave the place of the righteous dead if such a thing is even possible? Well, in the New Testament, God allows Moses and Elijah to visit Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Saul does what many desperate people do. They want to know the future, but they don't really want to know the future. When I was younger, I remember reading the tragic story of a man named Bishop James Pike. He had a son who died in a tragic accident overseas. And he was so broken hearted over the death of his son that Bishop Pike abandoned historical biblical Christianity, forsook the gospel and started pursuing the spirit world in the hopes that he could contact his son. People who are hurt and people who are desperate will sometimes do desperate things. And in verse 12, it says. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. 
And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul! Yeah. Here's the big question. Is she actually frightened? I think she really is. Do you suppose she was expecting something supernatural? I'm going to suggest maybe not. She was used to trickery. She was used to suggestions. She was used to all kinds of different things. But she wasn't expecting anything like this. Because God was at work. Most mediums enter into an altered state of consciousness. They allegedly channel their spirit guide. And have you ever noticed? Have you ever watched TV and these channelers? Have you ever heard a single one go, uh, my name is Beelzebub. I'm a demon from hell. They never do. They never announce themselves as demons. Because if they announced themselves as a demon, people would go, mm, I'm not likely to listen to you, demon. But they never do. You know what they always do? They always disguise themselves as some spirit guy. They disguise themselves as an elevated prophet or a glorified human being from the past or an ascended master or a traveler from a distant galaxy. My name is Serok and I'm from the Pleiades. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't Serok Spock's father on, on Star Trek The Next Generation? Okay, let's try a new name. See, we laugh at how absurd this is. Demons have the ability to mimic and impersonate our loved ones. And mediums who channel spirits are at best acting and at worst. They're allowing a demon to use them as a puppet. Whatever the woman saw, Saul didn't see it. Was she in an altered state of consciousness? We don't know. Did God allow the medium to peek into the spirit world? Apparently. The spirit comes up out of the earth, not from the sky in verse 13. Saul believes it is Samuel. He bows himself to the earth in verse 14. And then the spirit speaks in life. Now, I want you to think about this. So he said to her, what is this form? She said, an old man's coming up. He's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. He stoops with his face to the ground. He bows down. Now, I want you to think this through. In life, did Saul listen to the prophet? No. He disobeyed the prophet. Did he obey the prophet's commands? No, he disobeyed the prophet's commands. Did he obey God? No, he disobeyed God. He refuses to submit to the authority of the prophet when he's anointed the new king. He refuses to submit to the authority of the prophet when he says that the kingdom has been wrested from you. If he never listened and he never obeyed Samuel in life, why would he do so in death? You know why? Because he, again, wants to know the future. He wants to know the future. And in verse 15, look what it says carefully. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm deeply distressed. The Philistines make war. God's departed from me. Doesn't answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. 
Saul pours out his desperation to his ex-friend Samuel. But he still won't repent. He still won't obey the Lord. And in verse 16 it says, Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Now this is very interesting. Samuel says, Why are you asking me? Seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. It doesn't get more stronger than that. Samuel is in effect saying, how can a mere man reverse God's plan? How can a mere man change God's mind? Saul has rebelled against God. Saul has disobeyed God. Saul has grieved the Holy Spirit. Saul has acted like a demon-possessed man. Saul's determined to have God as his enemy, and now he has his wish. If you're determined, if you are determined to have God as your enemy, you might just have your wish. I don't want to obey you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to do that. Verse 17, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. What part of God's plan don't you understand? That's what he's saying. What part of God's plan don't you understand? You don't get to be the king anymore. David is going to be the king. I have a plan for David. I'm going to raise up David. I'm going to do with David what I couldn't do with you. Samuel reminds Saul he has no one to blame but himself. He's the one who disobeyed God's word. He's the one who refused to judge Amalek. See what it says in verse 18? Because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Do you remember what Amalek represents? It is sin. It is the sin nature. It is the sinful circumstances. Remember who Amalek were. These were the group of people that hounded the Israeli children as they were leaving Egypt and they were coming into the promised land. These were the, 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 where the poor and the sick and the women and the children and the helpless and the defenseless would come to the end of the train and the Amalekites would come and they would murder and slaughter and completely do vicious and wicked things. And God judged them. And it was God's will that sin be brutally, thoroughly, totally, permanently dealt with, but he didn't want to deal with his sin. Here's what Samuel's saying. Hey, you want to know what's going on? This is what's going on. You rejected God. God's rejected you. And you'll notice that Samuel doesn't tell Saul anything that he didn't already know or wasn't already previously revealed. Do you get that? The new information comes in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Oh, you want some new information? You want to know the future? Here's what 
is going to happen. You're going to die. Thanks. But even then, we can extrapolate that from the scriptures. The soul that sins it shall surely die. It's appointed once for a man to die and then judgment. I don't think Satan caused a false spirit or a lying spirit or a Samuel impersonator to deliver the weighty message. I believe God allowed the spirit of Samuel to leave Abraham's bosom so that Saul could experience one more supernatural word of judgment. And time has run out for Saul. You know, there's a fable which talks about three apprentice devils who come to the earth to uh, finish their apprenticeship. And they're talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin human beings. And the first one says, I'm going to tell them that there is no God. And Satan said, that won't delude many, for they know that there's a God. The second said, I will tell them that there is no hell. Satan answered, you won't deceive anyone that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell them there is no hurry. Go, said Satan, and you will ruin them by the thousands. The most dangerous delusion of all is the delusion that there's plenty of time. There's time to change. There's time to be different. And Saul receives judgment. For him, there's no time. His time is up. The most dangerous day in a man's life is when he learns that there is such a thing as tomorrow. And there are certain things that we should never, ever, ever put off till tomorrow. Especially when it's rebellion against God. Especially when it's wickedness. Especially when it's a refusal to come to God on God's terms. And in verse 20, look what it says. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. He's, he's freaked out. He's fully freaked out. He is drained. He is depressed. He is distraught. He is undone. He is terrified. He's frozen in fear. He's unable to move. He's paralyzed by the prospect of his own imminent fate. He's going to die with his sons. His sin will cause the good and the bad to suffer. And the full horror and the overwhelming consequences have now come home to roost. And it says in verse 21, and the woman came to Saul and said that he saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. I put my life in my hands. I've heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength to be on your way. Now, the woman appears kind, doesn't she? For a witch. She offers him rest and refreshment. But it's a prisoner's last meal. This is the food of condemnation. This isn't a celebration feast of joy. Here's what you should see over the paragraph. 
dead man eating. It's his last meal. It's his last meal. Everyone who is alive on the planet Earth will wake up one morning to the last thing that they'll do and the last food that they will eat. Saul would have been so much better if he hadn't killed those priests. Saul would have been so much better if he hadn't hounded the Lord's anointed. Now, I want you just quickly to do the math here. There are two Saul's mentioned in the Bible. This Saul, do you remember the other Saul? Who will become the Apostle Paul? We find Saul on his face in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We find find the other Saul on his face in the book of Acts. Both fell to the earth. Both were persecutors. One persecuted David. The other persecuted David's son. Both reached the end of their self-will. Both asked the question, what should I do? Both are smitten in judgment. One loses his sight. The other will lose his life. Saul, the son of Kish, will arise and he'll disappear into the night. That's what it says. And the woman had a fatted calf in the house. She hastened to kill it. She took flour and kneaded it. She baked the unleavened bread. Verse 25. She brought it before Saul and his servants. They ate. He goes up and he leaves into the night. Saul of Tarsus gets up. And he's blinded. To the things of the earth. He's blinded. Because all he could see was the last thing that he saw. And that was a resurrected Jesus in heaven who had said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you keep kicking against the goads? Who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus who you've been persecuting. Saul of Kish goes into the night. Saul of Tarsus makes his way to Damascus in the darkness of the blindness of his own circumstances. And a man prays for him. And his eyes are opened. And he understands that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Saul and his men head into the night to fight a fight that they can't win and to overcome an enemy that they can't destroy. And Saul of Tarsus begins to fight a fight that he will win and overcome an enemy who's been consigned to hell in a lake of fire. It was Mima Antrim who said, illusion is the dust the devil throws in the eyes of the foolish. And there are people living in darkness who don't even believe, even for a moment, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Or that his life and his death and his resurrection matter. You need to learn the lesson from this chapter. 
There is a person committed to a course of action because he has fully, willfully, finally, permanently rejected the plan of God and the will of God. But David, David, David is just around the corner. He's in a position of rebellion and disobedience as well. The difference? One will turn back to the Lord. That's really the story of your life. That's really the story of your life. You will turn. Or you won't. My prayer? You will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that People want supernatural information about their circumstances. And Lord, we know the only reliable source is the Bible. And the Bible, a supernatural book, tells us a supernatural message that our sins have alienated us and estranged us from God. But that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is willing and able to forgive us and cleanse us and wash us. If we will simply repent of our sin and forsake our sin and turn to Jesus Christ and obey him. Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a difficult, even a disillusioned circumstance. That they will cooperate with the plan of God. It's God's plan for you to know him and love him and walk with him and serve him. Fulfill the plan of God in your life. In Jesus' name. Amen.